You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Women on the Line acknowledges this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present, as well as the owners of the land you are hearing us from. When you think of wellness influences, what comes to mind? Is it sun, yoga, neo-Nazis? Well, today you'll hear from academic Tressilly Clerk, whose essay, Consumption Wellness in the Far Right, looks at why the wellness industry is a target for the spreading of white nationalist ideas. Later in the program, we will hear a previous interview that 3CR's Diaspora Blues did with Dr. Ruth DeSosa about her life-saving podcast, Birthing and Justice. Now, let's go to Tressa Lee Clerk. Welcome to Woman on the Line, Tressa. Hi, it's great to be here. It's great to be chatting with you. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Uh, hi, I'm Dr. Tressa LeClaire. I'm currently in California. Um, I was teaching at the University of Melbourne um, and uh, in digital politics last year. And what got you interested in this topic? Because prior to the interview, we were just discussing like how they're two completely different movements. Um, what brought you to this conversation? Well, I was actually having a conversation with uh, Dr. Shakira Hussein and Shahrazad Bal, and we were talking about food and um, also the alt-right influence and ideology. And so that's where the idea for this paper came out. The focus of your study is Pete Evans and his brand of paleo diet. I want to assume most people know who he is, but for those who don't know, who is Pete and why is he a controversial figure? Well, Pete's a celebrity chef on uh, My Kitchen Rules, and he's also known for promoting the paleo diet. Well, former chef on My Kitchen Rules because the show was canceled. Oh, I think it might be coming back now. Mm. Um, but he was known for promoting this paleo diet. But at the same time, um, he also started coming under fire for promoting sort of uh, conspiracy theories as well. And eventually, um, this sort of blew up when he posted the uh, a meme online. And in the meme, like you see this caterpillar, this caterpillar and this butterfly sort of sitting at a table, um, maybe having a glass of wine and the caterpillar is wearing a Make America Great Again hat and the butterfly has this sort of black space background and in it is a symbol. And the symbol is uh, a black sun, which has also been equated with the swastika. And the caterpillar is saying to this butterfly, you've changed. And the butterfly is saying, we're supposed to. And so Pete Evans posted this with the caption, an oldie but a goodie with like, you know, um, a peace sign and a heart and a rainbow. And a user sort of pointed out, hey, that's a black sun. And then Pete said, well, I was waiting for somebody to see that. And then um, later, apologized for it and said he didn't know what this this black sun symbol was and so there were lots of news reports 
coming out about that. And mm. so that was really interesting when we think about sort of Pete Evans as this sort of paleo diet guru that's posting this alt-right meme, whether he realized it or not. And there had been growing concern over um, sort of wellness influencers and conspiracy theory, specifically kind of QAnon's conspiracy theory and why that those sort of ideologies were traveling through those networks. So I thought I might take a look at it through how this meme sort of appeared um, in Pete Evans' social media. I know you mentioned the paleo diet and prior to this interview, I had no idea what it was. Can you explain what it is? And also it's like, it has um, from what I read in your article, like white supremacist origins. Can you tell me about that? Uh, sure. So the paleo diet, um, it's, it's sort of, I guess the paleo diet's like the short name for it. It's sort of referred to as the paleolithic diet or the stone age diet it's kind of known as a bit more of an ideological diet. Like for some diets, you might be like, I want to lose some weight. So I'm going to cut out these things. But with the paleo diet, the idea is that you're going to eat only things that were available during the stone age or the paleolithic era. So meats, and you're going to cut out all of these grains um, because grains are thought to be like not natural or naturally digestible by this sort of diet, or they're not as well the human body isn't as well suited to them. So it's quite a meat heavy diet, meats and, and fruits and some nuts, I think as well, but depending on, you know, which kind of book you read. And most people think of it as sort of uh, a diet that um, was promoted largely online or the, on social media, but Johnson actually argues that the origin of the diet can be traced back to 1975 with uh, Dr. Walter Vogland's book, the Stone Age diet. Um, and he says that, you know, it's been largely disavowed due to Votland's white supremacist, eugenicist, and generally unpalatable politics. So that's really interesting to consider because, um, you know, it's thought that a lot of the Nazi leaders also had a sort of obsession with kind of um, alternative medicine or an organic and vegetarian right. diets and homeopathy and natural healing. Yeah. And, and that is something I'd love for us to get into now because the wellness industry and the far right, I assumed were these like two completely different branches, but your article does an excellent job of listing some parallels between the two movements. And as you alluded to now, which is the obsession with purity, talk to me about that. Yeah, it, it's really interesting sort of going through some of the ideas um, within this diet and the wellness industry when they're talking about it. Like I said, it's a bit more of an ideological diet and it talks about, quote, real foods a lot. And so when it says real foods, it's almost kind of creating this dichotomy as these foods are, are real, these foods are pure and all other foods are kind of impure. So the implication is and you can kind of see that in this, this meme as well. There's some people that are in the know that like, you know, are, are doing the right thing and everybody else kind of isn't. And so you get this kind of, um, mm -hmm. you know, like we understand. And even Pete Evans has um, a media network called Evolve. And so there's that sort of implication, like we're evolved, we understand this, other people don't understand it. Um, so this kind of idea of like bodily purity is something that we can see inside of 
white nationalist ideology as well, because it's asserting that whiteness is superior. Right. Um, and the, the way of their way of doing things like the people that follow this ideology is superior, you know, so it's creating a sort of us versus them. Well, we do see this sort of racial hierarchy being created. It's taking a recipe, the butter chicken recipe, and it's saying, well, these ingredients are pure and this recipe is sort of impure. And so we're going to replace those ingredients. And when you have those ideas that like, you know, are quite similar, seemingly compatible, you can see why somebody would, might share something, even if they, you know, Mm. potentially don't realize what they're sharing. And that's how things can sort of spread online. So we're looking at sort of networks and how we might like, sort of move things through networks. And when you have somebody that has a huge following as Pete Evans does, then those ideas get spread much more quickly throughout a network. Mm, Absolutely. And I think, I feel like what you're alluding to next, and I'd love for you to discuss it further, is meme culture. So for me, I've always considered meme culture like this lighthearted, fun internet thing. And to an extent it is but it's also become like co-opted by the far right can you say more on this and also the spreadability of it yeah absolutely i mean so the alt-right being a movement that's like largely online has been able to utilize a lot of the technology online and so when you have uh, a symbol on a meme because memes contain a lot of ideology. Ideologies are like beliefs and belief systems, um, values, but we also see ideology carried through symbols. We know when we see the Make America Great Again hat that that is associated with Donald Trump and all the values of you know, Donald Trump and his party. And also we would consider it to be a white nationalist group as well. So we've got these ideologies of white nationalism, uh, which has sort of a fear of immigration and, um, you know, values that like sort of are associated with um, racism, basically. Mm-hmm. So when we see that hat on, on a meme, then that idea is traveling and it's showing up in people's Um, social media threads and it's starting to sort of normalize it or if somebody doesn't know what that symbol is say like the black sun which also appeared on the backpack of the christ church shooter so it's particularly insidious when that image appears people might not know and they start to search it and then all of that information starts coming up in their feed as well what about wellness influences? Um, why do you think they are like a perfect target for the far right? Um, I don't. I don't know if they're they're perfect, but they they seem to. I mean, it seems there seems to be a bit more attention on them mm-hmm. now. For for example, QAnon conspiracy theory and QAnon is also considered to be a sort of um, like kind of alt right conspiracy theory. A lot of those ideas and values, and even some Nazi conspiracy theories have popped up within this sort of broader conspiracy theory. Um, I'm not sure why wellness influencers um, just, I don't don't know, maybe became a target or Mm. have decided to kind of spread these ideas a little bit more. But I think there's just some underlying um, ideas that might make 
that sort of network a bit more susceptible, for example, um, you know, metaphysic, metaphysical um, ideas um, and, you know, the focus on the body and the spirit and mm. packaging ideas. Like we also see like with the alt light, which is sort of, it's like, you know, it's the alt right, but like, it's sort of packaged as like, it, it, it's a bit like we're multicultural, but at the same time, they're asserting those ideas of hierarchy as well. Like we might think about the butter chicken recipe and mm. how it's like multicultural, but at the same time, it's asserting like, you know, whiteness as, you know, pure or superior. So they're sort of packaged in these ideas of positivity, you know, peace sign, mm. a rainbow, but they're still um, disseminating I, these, these sort of values. And so when they're packaged in this positive frame, it may make it more likely that wellness influencers might share them because that idea of positivity is also part of that sort of take control of my life, think positively um, sort of ideology that we see within those networks. And that was Tressa Lee Clerk explaining why wellness influencers are a target of far-right groups. You can read her essay, Consumption, Wellness and the Far-Right, in the Media Culture Journal. I'll also provide a link to the essay on our Woman on the Line page at 3cr.org.au forward slash woman on the line. Up now is an interview by 3CR's Diaspora Blues program. Diaspora Blues spoke with Dr. Ruth DeSouza, the presenter of Birthing and Justice. This next conversation looks at structural racism in maternal health care. If this type of content is a trigger for you, please skip this episode. For support, call Lifeline on 131114. Welcome to Diaspora Blues, Ruth. So good to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming on. So before we delve into your podcast, Birthing and Justice, let us get to know you first. Tell us about you and what drew you to community health. Oh, this is a big question. Um, I trained as a nurse in 1984. That's when I started nursing. And um, in my first year as a new graduate, what I realized was that the things that affect people outside of hospitals are very important in terms of their health. And in the community, you could make a big difference to people, not just in one moment in time in a hospital. So I became very excited about community health. And I was actually a community mental health nurse. Um, I worked in New Zealand and in England as a nurse, mainly as a psychiatric nurse. I worked in psychiatric hospitals. I also worked in the drug and alcohol field. So I worked in a methadone clinic, which was my very first job. And so for me, the community is really important. Seeing people in their homes is really important because it gives you a bit of an idea about the things that help or hinder their well-being. Yeah, well, um, it sounds like you have a vast experience in different spaces um, through the health space. What drew you specifically to birthing and justice? That's a great question, Flick. Um, I had been working in mental health for many years as a community mental health nurse. And I started wondering about whether I could make a difference to people before um, they experience challenges in their life. And I kind of had this fantasy that 
um, birthing was this very beautiful place where everyone was happy and it was really special. And um, that's what drew me to birthing, that, that thought that I might be able to make a difference. And then what I found was I encountered a very kind of factory-like production model um, working in birth. So I was working on a postnatal ward and it was very much like a factory and, and the magic and specialness that I thought about birth were, were nowhere to be seen. All the kinds of dynamics of institutions, which can sometimes be quite cruel and quite uncaring, were very evident. And what I found were, was that they were very evident in terms of um, people of colour. So I noticed that despite all the years of cultural safety education that had been part of my education, that had been part of nursing and midwifery education, there was lots of callousness and disregard for people of colour, uh, Indigenous people, but also new migrants. And mm. this was in 1994, and New Zealand had changed its uh, white migration policy, which was, which was never articulated in the same way as the Australian one. But in 1987, New Zealand changed its migration policy to accept people from a range of host countries. Prior to that, they'd mainly selected people from very European and largely Anglo-Celtic countries. And so what had happened was we'd had a range of different uh, Asians in particular arriving in New Zealand. And the question that came into my mind is, how is cultural safety, which has been developed as something for Indigenous people, how is it actually playing out in this much more multicultural birthing space? Mm. Yeah, that's that shows um, a lot, like this longer history of medicalization of birthing and the pathologizing of the birthing process. Um, just kind of jumping ahead a little bit, um, with the questions, how are racialized or black or people of color's bodies specifically pathologized in the health sector? Well, there's a lot to say about this. And, and also, I just want to correct an assumption that you have a little bit, which is around who supports birthing people in New Zealand. It's one mm -hmm. of the countries that's led the way in terms of autonomous midwifery practice. So I actually expected better of midwives. That's what I need to say here. You know, I, I and, and the thing about midwifery is it's an explicit critique of biomedicalization. So um, I was really surprised that midwives who'd already had this gender critique were not extending it more broadly. But um, in terms of more broad kind of conversations around how racialized bodies are treated, we know that pregnant people who are recent immigrants, indigenous and or disenfranchised by their lower socioeconomic status, race, ethnicity, incarceration, substance dependence or housing instability, all have an increased risk for poorer health outcomes and reduced mm -hmm. access to high quality care. Now, the thing that's important about that uh, is even though that's sort of a, a global, very general finding, 
the Multicultural Center for Women's Health uh, produced a report that came out last week uh, about sexual and reproductive health. And what they found is, first of all, there's a lack of data on migrant mm -hmm. and refugee women's sexual and repro reproductive health. But the other evidence that we have, uh, you know, even though it's limited, is that they're less likely to have access to evidence-based and culturally relevant information, which will enable them to manage their own family contra contraceptive choices and menstrual health. Um, there's a few other findings that I'd like to flag as well. You know, they're less likely to participate in preventative health services. And mm. um, this is what I found in my own research around cervical cancer screening. They're also at greater risk of contracting sexually transmitted conditions, for example, HIV or hepatitis B. Uh, in terms of that birthing space, they tend to access antenatal care later and experience higher rates of stillbirth. Um, there, there's a whole lot of kind of risk stuff. And I don't want to sound like, um, you know, that they are a deficit as a group. Like I think this is also related to how the um, gynecological and obstetric services are perceived by people from migrant and refugee backgrounds who might not know a lot about them or have um, poor mm -hmm. encounters with them and then don't come back. Uh, but we also know that they're more likely to experience perinatal mental health conditions. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the kind of work that I've done. So I set up a uh, what was called a maternal mental health team in Auckland in New Zealand. Um, and, and those things are also linked with social isolation, um, financial insecurity and migration related stresses. So that's a bit of a, a snapshot of kind of what the issues are. Mm. Um, and I, I guess just to pick up uh, some more on the question you asked about how black and other racialized bodies are pathologized in the health system, um, we know from a US study that one of my colleagues who's a, an amazing nurse and associate professor in the US, uh, Monica McElmore, um, has found that one in six women reported receiving uh, a type of mistreatment, for example, mm. loss of autonomy, being shouted at, scolded, threatened, being ignored, refused, uh, or receiving no response to requests for help. So, you know, um, the, the people that were less likely to be mistreated uh, were those who are looked after by a midwife, uh, those who are white, those who'd had one or more babies already, and mm. those who are older than 30. But the rates of mistreatment for women of color or people of color uh, were consistently higher. And uh, so, for example, poor women, you know, mm -hmm. especially if we're thinking intersectionally, uh, poor women uh, had higher rates of reporting mistreatment. So 27% versus 18% of poor white women. Um, but regardless of maternal race, having a partner who was black also increased mm. reported mistreatment. And that was Dr. Ruth DeSouza speaking to Diaspora Blues about birthing and justice, a podcast about birth, racism and cultural safety. You can listen to the rest of their conversation by going to 3cr.org.au forward slash Diaspora Blues. 
Birthing and Justice is available on all listening apps. Woman on the Line is a community radio national women's current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the community radio network. We greatly appreciate the financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so send us an email to womanontheline at gmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 8377. Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from our website, 3cr.org.au forward slash Woman on the Line. The theme music for Woman on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. We finished today's show with the track Damaged by Misha. I'm Ayan Shirwa and you've been listening to Woman on the Line.
But all you did to my old self was drag me down. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.